God wonderful surprise. Jesus' friends were sad they would never see their best friend again. How could this happen? Once Jesus was rescued, wasn't Jesus the rescue? The king God had promised it wasn't supposed to end like this. Yes, but whoever said anything about the end, just before sunrise on the third day, God sent an earthquake and an angel from heaven. When the guards saw the angel, they fell down with fright. The angels rolled the huge stone away, sat on top of it, and waited. At first, the at the first glimmer of dawn, Mary Magdalene and other women headed to the tomb to wash Jesus' body. The early morning sun the early morning sun slanted through the ancient olive trees, drops of dew glittering on leaves and grasses, little tears everywhere, and the friends walked quietly along the hill path, hilly path through the olive groves until they reached the tomb and immediately noticed something odd. It was wide opened. They peered through the opening into the dark tomb, but wait, Jesus' body was gone. Joe said it really beautifully earlier. We believe at St. Clair we were resurrection people. And so we come this morning with a sense of hope. And hope is really important. We're not a people who are optimists. We're actually people full of hope. And so we believe that there was an event that took place in human history, a real event. This is a mythology that actually transformed the world and changed the world. And so we gather today to celebrate that. I'm just going to read, uh, I'm doing the announcements, but to tie everything in, I'm just going to read one of my favorite Easter quotes, if that's okay, uh, by Philip Yancey, which I think encapsulates so much of why we gather today. In many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, Easter means he must be on the loose out there somewhere. That's why we gather this morning. We are an Easter people. We're a resurrection people. As Joe said, not just a pep rally, but trusting in what Jesus has done in his resurrection. Luke chapter 24, um, verses 33 to 49 uh, from the message. Um, and this is referring to the individuals that Jesus met and revealed himself to on the road to Emmaus. They didn't waste a minute. They were up and on their way back to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their friends gathered there, talking away. It's really happened. The master has been raised up. Simon saw him. Then the two went over everything that happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. And while they were saying all this, Jesus appeared to them and said, Peace be with you. They thought they were seeing a ghost and were scared half to death. 
He continued with them, Don't be upset, and don't let all these doubting questions take over. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's really me. Touch me. Look me over from head to toe. A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone like this. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And they still couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was too much. It seemed too good to be true. He asked, Do you have any food here? They gave him a piece of leftover fish they had cooked. He took it and ate it right before their eyes. Then he said, Everything I told you while I was with you comes to this. All the things written about me in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and in the Psalms have to be fulfilled. He went on to open their understanding of the Word of God, showing them how to read their Bibles this way. He said, You can see now how it is written that the Messiah suffers, rises from the dead on the third day, and then a total life change through the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name to all nations. Starting from here, from Jerusalem, you're the first to hear and see it. You're the witnesses. What comes next is very important. I'm sending what my father promised to you, so stay here in the city until he arrives, until you're equipped with power from on high. It's good to be with you this morning. Welcome if you are visiting or if you're new with us on this Easter Sunday. My name is Dave, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here at St. Clair. And I've been thinking a lot this week about this gathering, about Easter Sunday, and praying for our community. And as I thought about Easter and thought about resurrection and this resurrection life of Jesus, there was actually a few things in the news this week that caught my attention that had this theme, this narrative, this sort of, uh, you know, kind of brought to life a kind of imagination of resurrection. So let me, let me offer you some of the things of last week in uh, our world. I may lose some of you right away on this, but I need to go there with it. <laughs> I don't, I could spend too much time on this, but when I think of resurrection, what was lost and now is felt, what was counted for dead, oh, this was a triumphal moment in my own life, watching this take place. Some people have said this was the greatest moment in sport. That might be an overstatement, but... Michael Jordan, who's regarded as one of the best athletes in all of sports, said it is the greatest comeback he has ever seen in sports. So, I mean, that captivated my affection and emotion for something that was dead that now has new life. Uh, But maybe more appropriately or helpfully, uh, you were able to, you know, see this take place this week. Uh, it, It was very curious to me. That in a world where we are thinking we don't need God, nor do we want God anymore, where we live closer and closer to this post-Christian secular society, that here is a, a physical place that is a reminder of a transcendent reality in our midst, and there's this ache, there's this longing. And I, the current total I saw is that over a billion dollars have been raised in the few days since to go towards a resurrection effort for this building, which is incredible. But, I mean, these examples of 
Tiger Woods and the Notre Dame Cathedral. I mean, they, they fail us. They fall short in thinking about the significance of resurrection. I mean, t- Tiger Woods imploded his own life and has won a tournament. Like, big hooray. You know, the Notre Dame Cathedral, there is a very fair critique that in a billion dollars being raised in such a short amount of time, how much could that money go towards people who are in desperate need? And it's going towards a idle, like a, a static physical building. I don't know. I, to think about resurrection and how to imagine the significance of it, I, maybe... Maybe some of the storylines in, in, uh, in movies that we know gives us an easy point of relating. I mean, the, the scene in uh, The Matrix when Neo rises up is this like, yes, moment. Or when Harry Potter comes back to defeat he who shall not be named. <laughs> like, some of these things are the best thing that we've got to try to relate to this crazy thing called resurrection. Maybe at best, they are examples that inspire us, but I'm not sure they can do a whole lot more than that. What do we do with a resurrection that actually changed the cosmos? Where do we even start with that? A friend introduced me to this painting this week. I don't know if it's familiar to you. It was new to me. It's a 15th century Renaissance painting from Piero della Francesca. Some have regarded it as one of the greatest paintings ever painted. And as I thought and reflected on this, on the craziness of Jesus being resurrected. I I read this description uh, of an author talking about this painting. Perhaps it can help invigorate our imagination of this story that we're entering into. In describing this, one says, Christ's majestical stepping out from the grave, death running off his limbs like drops from a shower. Christ is half risen. He has paused to gather himself for a final spring. His shoulders sag indolently, his flat foot resting on his sarcophagus. The black eyes that have seen the depths of hell now stare out, ravenous, not with hunger, but with unbearable fullness. His deathless life is wild and uncontainable. Like an overflowing cup, he seeks out smaller vessels into which his own life can be decanted. His eyes are commanding, imperative, searching out those whose lives are ready like the tomb, to be pushed open and defeated by his implacable rising. I could, I could finish there, and maybe that's enough for today. When I looked at this, I think I could hear the words 
of Peter and Acts, when the promised Holy Spirit comes in this moment of power from on high has come on Jesus' disciples. When Peter calls out to the crowd and said, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's the Jesus that we're talking about this morning. This is the Jesus that we are celebrating in our midst. I am guilty of this. I think we've tamed Easter. And Jesus' resurrection is a wild reality that can't quite be contained. Like Rob had said last night, if you're with us, there isn't an audacious hope in Easter Sunday. N.T. Wright says this, We could cope, the world could cope, with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples' minds and hearts. The world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb, who inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. That's the Jesus we're talking about. So, so I, where do we start even to sort of get our bearings on what has taken place? I think it helps us to look at the reaction the disciples the people that were a witness to all these events, how they responded as it was happening. So as it was read for us, Luke 24, 33 to 49. This moment happens where two followers of Jesus are on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, in this really strange way, shows up as a stranger to them to hear from them all the events are of what is has been taking on jesus pretended to be ignorant and then revealed himself to these two guys in the breaking of bread and then he's gone he disappears so the two guys go running back the seven, eight kilometer trek that they just took back to the 11 disciples to say, we saw him. We saw him. He was with us. He, we, our eyes were opened. Our hearts were set ablaze. It's real. The thing is real. They go back to the 11 where the women had, were the first ones to encounter an empty tomb. They went, not quite knowing what to expect, maybe perhaps only just to grieve, because they brought spices to care for the dead body of Jesus. And then they are confronted with an angel showing up saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And when Peter heard this report from the woman, he ran to the empty tomb to see for himself the, the linens that Jesus was wrapped in, that they were left there, but there was no sign of Jesus. Peter had no encounter of him. It says he was just left to wonder. And if you read the gospel account, when the women gave this report of what they had seen and heard of an angel visiting them, but they hadn't actually seen Jesus, 
The disciples said that their words seemed like nonsense. That they just couldn't make sense of this because none of them had the expectation that this was going to happen. It caught them all by surprise. And so in this moment where everything is swirling around, there's now all these reports of he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And two of them have actually seen it and are witness to it. Jesus miraculously appears in their midst. And his first words to them are, peace be with you. (laughs) It's like of all the things Jesus could have said or done, I don't know that it didn't seem or appear that there were trumpets or lightning in this moment. He just gave the warm greeting of saying, peace be with you. Shalom. It's almost as though Jesus is showing up in this wild moment and saying, hey, (laughs) like really? That's Jesus? That's why you're bringing this? So it's probably to no surprise that the disciples' world is just spinning. And there's, there's this really interesting thread that if you read what is going on with Jesus post-resurrection in all the gospel accounts, in every case, the followers of Jesus, the disciples, and the people who encounter the resurrected Jesus, there is a disbelief. And Jesus kind of plays out, and even the angels play out. They kind of draw out this playful confusion. It's where Jesus says, well, why why are you troubled? (laughs) Like, I mean, Jesus is full aware of what is going on in this. And there's an irony because none of the followers of Jesus anticipated this. Somehow, some way, it didn't make it on their radar that this thing might actually happen, and that when the death had happened, they just didn't know what to do. In all the gospel accounts, the only people who remember that Jesus said this thing was going to happen were the Pharisees, who go to Pilate and say, Pilate, we know that this man talked about raising up three days later. So we ask that you send some Roman guards to protect the tomb so that this deceiver does not deceive more people. There's a weird irony to the only people that remember this are the Pharisees. No one else seems to have a point of reference for it. And so Jesus just does the obvious thing, and he names the elephant in the room and says, Guys, I'm not a ghost. (laughs) Like, this is how this this is supposed to play out right now? I I think it's really interesting that Jesus did not say, guys, listen, listen, there's no such thing as ghosts. Come on, where are you getting that? He's like, well, no, I'm not going to explain to you ghosts. I'm just, I'm not one of them. Which begs the question, is there such thing as ghosts? I don't know. That's for another sermon for another day that I will not touch. (laughs) I mean, it says in Luke that as the disciples are hearing this and they're just being bombarded with this wild moment, that they are just overwhelmed with joy and amazement. 
yet they still don't believe. They still just, they can't actually make sense of it. And I don't know if in your life, what your reaction is when you have news that is overwhelming, perhaps good or perhaps bad. I think in my sort of vernacular, I I say things like, you got to be kidding me or no way or come on. There's this gut reaction of a disbelief because whatever the news is, it just seems too big to handle. And it seems like that's where the disciples are at in this moment. And so in this curious moment where Jesus shows up and says, hey, so this guy's good, I'm not a ghost. The, the next thing that he does is saying, does someone have something to eat? <laughs> like, I don't know if Jesus could have crafted a moment that would in one sense be as crazy and as profound as it is, yet in another way is as normal and plain as it is. And so in this very ordinary way, Jesus shows up and eats some fish. The normal stuff of life is how he's verifying and proving and demonstrating that he is living and alive. There is a common thread as you read the gospel accounts of what was going on with this resurrection that everyone across the board had some kind of deep disappointment or disillusionment to what was going on. They just didn't get it. That Jesus' resurrection surpassed or transcended everything that they thought they knew. Their expectations had been blown up. And Jesus seemed quite all right for his followers to bear the disappointment in order to know how real the resurrection was. He was okay with that space. So perhaps you are in good company if you are amongst the disappointed disciples. Disappointment, I probably don't have to convince you of this. It is an unavoidable part of life. I mean, how can it not be? We all have some version, we all have some vision of the good life, of the way we think things should go, probably as it best serves us. But inevitably, we are handed circumstances that we did not ask for or we are living with decisions that we regret that pretty much things don't go how we ended up, how we planned they would. And so we're left with some kind of disappointment in our life. I don't know whether you can fully articulate it or not, but I think, I wonder if we often hold God responsible for the outcome of our life and all the expectations of who we think God is and what we think he should do for us. 
that just as we have a vision of what our life could be or should be, I think many of us have an expectation of who God should be to us and perhaps even to say what God owes us along the way. I read an article this week that was brilliant in talking about the sense of disillusionment and disappointment that we all have at some point in our life with God. He names some of the ways that we have expectations of who we think God should be to us. So it was worded very helpfully, so let me read a portion of it for you. He says, maybe you picture God as a heavenly bellhop whose job is to satisfy your deepest desires. Or perhaps God is a holy matchmaker who will secure you a spouse. Maybe God is a cosmic bodyguard who protects you from harm. Or the world's best nanny, making sure your children turn out right. Or a divine doctor, healing your every physical and mental ailment. Or a wonder-working accountant, solving all your financial problems. I think it is inevitable that there is something in our life that at some point is going to cause the walls that we have built up to secure ourselves to come crashing down. I think many of us can relate to doubt. The doubt is a very real and it is commonplace for our life and our faith. It's the hesitancy to believe or to really trust and doubt plays out into disappointment. That what we hope for doesn't quite go our way. And if disappointment sets in, then we feel discouragement. That what we hope that, uh, sorry, the will to try again grows weak. And as our will is weakened, we then just know disillusionment. That we become numb and indifferent and perhaps distant. And out of delusionment, we experience despair. Despair is defined as the loss of absence or of hope. One friend says that despair is when the light goes out in your eyes. And out of despair comes depression being crushed by the weight of hopelessness and being left helpless. When I think about my own life, I have often experienced that place of discouragement where I've become frustrated or disheartened that things haven't gone the way I think they should. And it usually is zeroed back in on me that, oh, I, I should be better at this. I, I should work on that. If I was only more like this, if only I did more of that. And I rarely measure up to my own standard. And so discouragement easily sets in. I was cut to the heart when I read this definition of discouragement. That discouragement is disenchanted self-love. 
that really it's, it's about my world and things working to serve me. That in my unmet expectations of who I think God is and who he should be for me, discouragement really is, has been a thing of me just not getting my way. And I think God has been okay for my own plans to be frustrated and not realized that it would give way to something bigger and something better. I think God is quite all right to disappoint us. I don't think he's scared of our disappointment. I actually think he sees it as a necessary part of our growth. I think we all carry the doubt of, can God really be as good as he says he is? And the rest of our life is how we respond to that question. I think for many of us, we probably know that to call it the descent of the D's. That slippery, difficult slope. And then we feel like somewhere along the way, God has left us. And that just like the disciples after the crucifixion, God seems nowhere to be found. But if we're talking about a wildly good gospel, where the resurrection hope is real, let me read you these words from Rowan Williams. He says, Our problem is not that God is too distant, but that in Christ, God has come unbearably near. There is no safe vantage point from which we can speak about God. We must learn to speak of a God involved with the whole fabric of our being. What if God is allowing disappointment and disillusionment in our life to shatter the expectations we've had of him that are too small for the world as we now know it? What if God is allowing death to happen in our life so that we can taste the fullness of new life? What if God wants to reveal himself to be radically more than we ever thought possible, to be closer than we ever dared hope? What if this cycle of death and resurrection is the Christian life? 2 Corinthians 4 says this, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For, who we, uh, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. There is an incredible mystery in all this, to put our hope in a resurrected Jesus Having full, hopeful expectation is putting to the test that God really is as good as he says he is. I think in embracing the new life of Jesus, we actually still feel the pain of death along the way. 
I'm not sure it goes away that easy. But God's promise to us is not the absence of pain. It is the assurance of his presence. It's a big difference. The resurrected life of Jesus can't be contained. It wants to break out and run free in our life that we would know the love that surpasses knowledge. Let me read you this. This has shaken my world in a very helpful way. Chesterton says, The more I considered Christianity, the more that I found that while it had an established rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I want to live that life. I want to taste and know the abundance and the freedom of that life. And I long for that for us as a community. I wonder if some of us have been hoping and waiting for God to show up again in our life, but we've been expecting the mountaintop experience the miraculous experience that would be a rescue for us out of our despair, and it would just sort of solve everything. But just like Jesus did with his very own disciples, he came and he was present in the normal stuff of life. What if God wants to reveal his new life to you in the ordinary things? in those mustard seed ways. It may actually require a greater trust of us to let God show up in what is plain and predictable and not what's exciting. You may have noticed this morning that we have the table here, but we don't have any elements there. This would be the one Sunday of the year for us where we're not taking communion together. Because the empty table reminds us of an empty tomb. And so we're celebrating that Jesus is alive and that he promises us new life. That we have the risen Jesus crashing into our life in this world in a way that we can't quite get our head around. And that's okay. His commanding eyes, searching out those whose lives are ready, like the tomb to be pushed open. What Jesus offers us is what's said in Hebrews, that he is a great high priest for us that has an indestructible life. It's not going anywhere. St. Clair, we get to be this sort of creative minority, this peculiar people in the world in which we live, that we claim this wild hope that Jesus is alive and that that changes everything. Hear these words from Paul's prayer in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not in the present age, but also in the age to come. St. Clair, go in peace this Easter Sunday.